0: Did you guys watch the Oscars last Sunday, uh, a week ago, right? Uh, you know, I'm kind of into those movies things as well. And so uh, if you watched it, uh, you saw history last Sunday. Uh, the First uh, non-English, right, foreign, I guess, uh, language film to win Best Picture in the 92-year history of the Oscars—a uh, quite an accomplishment. This Korean movie *Parasite*, right? There it is, right? *Parasite* won, and I was sharing a little bit about the director, uh, Bong joon uh, He won also the Oscar for Best Director, and they won a bunch of awards, right? International film, screenplay, and all that. All right, what's this movie about, right? This hype with all these people talking about it. If you haven't seen the movie yet, I'm not going to give you any teasers or spoilers here. I'm not going to ruin it for you. But if you haven't seen it by now, it's your fault, actually, if I do. Okay, so it's, it's on you now by this time. It's been out for many months. But I read an interview with director, uh, I guess, Bong. And, and he was sharing what this movie really was about for him. And as he's kind of working with the screenplay and, and what he wanted to show. It's a movie about our society, isn't it? It's a movie about our world that we live in today, about classism, right? The different classes that we have uh, throughout uh, this world, uh, fear, and even the fragilities and what we call this American dream, right? This pursuit of the American dream. What is this dream that everyone kind of seeks after? What? A nice house, Right? Uh, white picket fence, house like on the, uh, the top of the hill, right? On, on the, the higher you get, the better. And, and we want to be up on, on, on the top there with a nice view, prestigious job. We you get respect and, and you got to you know, just this beautiful family with, with beautiful children. And oh yeah, those, those three pampered dogs in the movie. Remember those three dogs' names? I think it was Zuni, Berry, and Fufu. Remember those three uh, dogs with the uh, dog lovers there? It's a perfect dream. a Nice picture. Everyone wants to aspire for that American dream. Director Boehm says, well, that dream is in a real sense on thin ice. It's very, very thin, he said. You know, It's very, very thin. <clears throat> this American dream we all live for. We work hard for. Director Boehm, he said in this interview, with Paris said, I really wanted to be honest. He said, I didn't want to spread this random hope to the audience. I really wanted to reflect... The truth of the current times. Hmm. I found quite insightful his uh, comment there. That as he's making this movie, he didn't want to spread what he calls random hope. I like that. This hope that we're all seeking for, looking for. Uh, he didn't want to just give this random hope that people all could cling and, and grasp, maybe that's it. He also wanted to reflect, hey, this is the truth of what's happening today in our current times. And what is this truth? Well, I think maybe the reason why this movie got so many awards and acclaim and all these great reviews, I think this story resonates with a lot of the world, humanity. If you watch the movie, I think you can understand just you know the the different issues that are are, are taking place, right, in our current times, especially those of us uh, having lived here in New York and, and having working here in our Just crazy busy, you know, professions and work, hours, just nonstop, moving on vocationally in one of probably the highest costs of living uh, cities in the world, right? I mean, no matter how hard you work and how, how much money you make, and you know, there's always going to be people that are living in, in the higher places, right? And then up higher on that hill than you. And, you know, we work so much and we're making this, you know, salary. Yeah, we're living in, you know, uh, I mean, it's crazy to have apartment rent these days, isn't it? Uh, one bedroom, like you know, fifteen, two thousand dollars. I mean, that's crazy society that we're living in today. We all see the people around us. Uh, there are going to be people always that are living in bigger homes, driving nice, nicer cars that look like they have more of that perfect family than you and I. Will we ever achieve this dream? Yeah. <laughs> This middle class uh, I guess thought uh, that, that most of us may be in, and this is the, they call it the squeeze of the middle class that 's taking place, the sense of you know us having something to aspire to, but yet there 's always this fear that we have that we 're going to lose it, and this sense of fear to lose as well, this pursuit of the American dream. And so what we've been saying, we're trying to make this work and achieve these goals. We're trying to work harder and, and do it our way with our plans and achieve our goals. And we've had time to reflect on this, haven't we? In the past three weeks especially, I've been uh, having us reflect on our lives, our life pursuits, especially in light of what's going on today around the world. As we know, the coronavirus continues to spread worldwide. Now more than 69,000 People in fact they think about that. Death toll now at 1669 people as of this morning, right? People are thinking more about this life-death, as I said. You know, Kobe Bryant's passing, of course, his memorial coming up next Monday, and, and now this parasite moving winning the Oscars. I believe, church, that this gives us an opportunity as Christians. As, as the church, to talk to people about these life issues, these life questions that are coming up, whether at home or on campus or in your schools or workplaces or even with your friends hanging out. There's these opportunities now that people are talking about these things, right? These life issues, and so when we're talking about these matters, what is your life pursuit, right? What are you going to say is what you're living for? What, what will you say to those who you know, are pursuing this American dream, working harder, longer hours, consumed with work and possession, the material things of this world? You know, what are we going to say to the world that has these questions? And we've been exploring that the past three weeks. Today, I want us to expound on that even further. God's giving us these answers here in his word, in his great Scripture. He's reminding us here, of course, of what these answers are. And, and he's telling us, take this story right, to the people around you. You know, the people that God has placed into your life. Take this story to them, right? To be persuaders of the truth, as we learned last week. The Apostle Paul, compelled by the love of Christ. To be that persuader of the truth. See, so I want us to continue on with God's story. Remember, this is God's story. We're part of it. He's invited us to be part of that. And today we see what happens... When we try to live out our story, in essence, without God, right? What happens when we try to, again, take matters into our own hands, when we demand that, God, you fit into my life, into my story. I want you to kind of, you know, do as I say and, and, and be as I please and do as I please. And I want you to fit into my life instead of us fitting to his grand, greater story. There's consequences God shows us when we do that church. And God heeds us the warning today to those that he loves dearly. And it's including all of you here today. So before we turn to our passage, would you begin? uh, Join me in a word of prayer as we lift this passage and this message that he has prepared for us. Let's pray to God. Father, we come to you humbly today to hear your word. Uh, Especially, God, on on these kind of passages of of warnings, uh, it may be hard to hear. But Father, we want your word may it nourish us today that it would grow us in our relationship with you, Father. Would you help us to be open to what you want us to hear, to know that what you teach us is out of your great love that you have for your children. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, turn with me again to 1 Samuel chapter 8 Uh, it's a wonderful beautiful text we're at this point of history in the Bible here it's God's story here the nation Israel is changing here very dramatic shift in leadership from judgeship to kingship here is this transition point here from the story of Samuel the prophet Samuel he's judging Israel now and transitioning over to of course the first king Saul and that's where we're at in 1 Samuel 8 it brings us to the latter part of Samuel's life here now And, and, and we know Samuel's he was a prophet of the Lord. God also raised up Samuel, did you know, to judge Israel, to bring the nation back to him. And, and in just the previous chapter, chapter 7 here we see in 1 Samuel, Samuel has led Israel to this point of returning back to God, back to the Lord, all their heart to serve and love him only. The people have put away their foreign gods and they've prayed to God. And in doing so, God has delivered Israel. Out of the hands of the Philistines. I mean, this is a joyous time for Israel. It should be a time of celebration. Wonderful time. Israelites have once again experienced the grace of God, his mercy, his saving deliverance. And this ought to be a time of thanksgiving and praise. But that's not what we see. Look with me in verses 4 to 5. This is chapter. We're going to select a couple of verses uh, throughout this message here. Verses 4 to 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathers together. And they came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, Samuel, you are too old. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The Israelites, their leadership, they go to Samuel and they're presenting requests. It's actually a demand. It's more like a demand to Samuel, give us a king. I demand a king to judge us like all the nations. Give us a king to lead us, to judge us, to bring us there. At first glance, you know, we may say, hey, this may be justified. And you know, if we understand the content, verses 1 to 3, uh, Samuel's t- you know, letting us know also that his sons that were appointed to be judged, they were corrupt, right? They're, they're, it says here they were they're accepting bribes and, and perverted justice in verse 3. And so, yeah, maybe it's right that the people demand a new king, right? Who wants corruption and leadership? So let's switch it over. It seems reasonable, right? Perhaps we also need a king. There's still territorial concerns all across, you know, longstanding Philistines are still there. The, the Ammonites are to the east, Philistines to the west. You know, we need a king maybe militarily to have a stronghold for Israel. Well, that's not so bad, is it? Well, it's not a bad thing, this kingship, perhaps. You know, God you know, doesn't necessarily say having a king is, is a bad thing or it's evil or sinful. No, I mean, even in Genesis seventeen six, God says in his covenant with Abraham, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So we see it's part of God's plan of you know, redemption from the beginning for his people, right? So it's not necessarily the demand for a king or the legitimate complaints against Samuel's sons or even the concerns of this territorial security that's the issue here. No, there's something deeper here going on. What's the motivation of why the Israelites are demanding a king? We always have to look for the reason, don't we? There are ulterior motives that the Israelites are having in their demand for a king. What is that? Why are they just just demanding this king from Samuel and from God? Well, the the, the text shows us uh, as we unfold this text a bit more, uh, this demand that Israel makes, I mean, verse 6, Samuel's not happy about it. It says it truly displeased Samuel, and, and, and Samuel prays to God. You know, Samuel's not happy. He's like, hey, the people, maybe they're not happy with my leadership or my judgeship or even my you know, prof- ministry of prophecy. And So maybe, are they upset with me, God? No, God says, hey, let me tell you, Samuel, in verse 7. Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being king over them. God's saying, Samuel, it's not about you. They're not rejecting you, you see here. The Israelites, they're demanding a king, this future. They're A king that, that they believe is going to lead them to a, a future, a, a vision, a place that they want in their life. And, and they believe they know what's best for them. And in doing so, Samuel, they have not rejected you. They have rejected me. They have rejected me as their Lord, their protector, their provider, as their one and only king. You know, God shows us here. You know, think about the plans that you have for your life. Right? You have a vision. You know, sometimes when we uh, you know, go to job interviews, you know, the interviewer may ask you, right, what is your you know, life vision maybe in one year? Where do you see yourself in one year or five years or 10 years or 20 years? Think about that for a moment, church. Where do you see yourself or your family or your future family? Where do you want to be, right? What do you want to accomplish in your life? And how are you going to get there early, right? And what, what kind of future do you want? We all have this vision, this plan for our lives, right? And this was this past week. I was talking with Kathy's mom about the church, where we're headed as a church is multi-congregational vision. I'm telling you, there's no other vision like our church that I've seen, at least in the U.S. here. Right now, four congregations in unity, one body, four different languages and ethnicities, but we're, we're together you know, as a family, one family of God. and It's really a beautiful vision. I, I do believe that and we we're headed there and, and Reverend Kim as I shared with some of you uh, he, he's, he's asking of me to expand uh, my role here at the church a little, a, a little more of a, a role in, in oversight of the greater church uh, and, and, and beyond QPEM, and, and also you know just overseeing the other ministries and so, so I'm talking to my mom Kathy's mom about this and she's like you gotta learn Korean that's what she says to me, okay your Korean is terrible okay you know this church is still predominantly mainly Korean ministry so if you're gonna do all this then you, your Korean's gotta be much better Okay, your Korean is, is embarrassing. She's like, you know, your kids even, Caleb and Luke, they just started as Korean school again, right? This yesterday they went back to Korean school. They're like, what are you doing with your kids even, you know? You don't speak Korean to them at home. So, she gave it to me and Kathy. Yes, and I'm telling you, it wasn't fun, you know? She's like, what kind of parents are you, you know, not speaking Korean to them at home? You know, don't you care about their future? Don't you care about them? Even your future. I'm like, oh, and I said to Kathy's mom, I'm like, you know, we're second generation, you know? We're second gen, like EMers here. Like, I, I, my culture, my native Languages, English actually, you know. I want to actually connect with my kids speaking English because that's how we can get really connection. And dad, I how can we talk in Korean? Like, you know, barely I can speak and they can speak. Like, how can we really connect? I'm talking to these things, and she has a a, a vision, right? A future for, for me and my family, a place where she wants us to go, and she has a plan on how it's gonna get there, right? Yeah, we gotta learn a lot more, right? But you know, I have a perhaps a, a different calling per se. Uh, you know, and what kind of a vision that I like for you know, my kids and our family and such. And it's different. We all struggle there, don't we? We have struggles when other people have these visions for you that, that maybe not fit into quite your future and how you want it to be in your life. Maybe some of your parents are kind of overbearing or you know, they do it out of love. They really do. It gets out of love, but it can be a little bit much at times. And, and so we get that. We experience that, right? God's saying here to Israel, I have a future for you. I have a vision for you. It's out of love. It's because I love you. Because you're my chosen people. You're my children. right He, in fact, reminds Samuel again of just how much he has done, you know, in Israel's history, verse 8. He says, according to all the deeds that they have done, the Israelites, from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you, you know. Now, I've, I've been with them, I, I've delivered them, but yet they continue to forsake and serve other gods. The people of Israel, they, they, they understand who, who God is, what he's done, but they, they, it's almost like, God, I appreciate all that. Thanks, you know, for being my dad. You know, you raised me up this much. You delivered us, you know, every time of need. But here's the thing, God, we have a future, Okay. That I kind of want here for for us, and 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 we know what it's going to take to get there, God, right? And in in essence, you know, I think what you're kind of wanting for us, it's not quite what we have in mind, and actually, you you might be getting in the way, right, God? The way you want us to go and achieve this future is actually, it may make things even harder, God. So you know what? Maybe this future doesn't really involve you too much, God. You can maybe just sit on the sidelines a bit. Maybe just you know, just be there, you're know, overseeing things, sure. But just let us be, right? Just let us kind of, you know, just do our thing, God, you know? You can be a part of it if you like, but just don't get in our way. We ever do that? <laughs> I have my life, and let me live it, right? I know what I want. Who knows me better than myself, right? We got to get there, you know. How, how would our parents respond, right, when we say that as church? How, how would God respond when we say that to him? I mean, if my kids, you know, Caleb and Luke ever responded to me that kind of way after, you know, you know raising them up, say, send them off to college and, and do all this for them. And they, Dad, thanks for everything, but now leave me alone, Right? Thanks for everything, but now now it's my life and just, you know, just, just step out. I got my own plans, you know. I know what it's going to take to get there, so, so just just step out. And how would I feel? I'd be hurt, crushed, devastated. Really. How would God feel? And God is also a mode of God. You know, he has feelings. He, he has emotions, you know. The, yeah, the almighty, awesome, holy, righteous, almighty God, but yet he is also a compassionate and, and loving and, and, and merciful and, our heavenly father here, right? It's astounding how he's treated us as his children out of a father's love, what he's done. How would he feel when his children say, hey, (laughs) thanks, but no thanks. Perhaps, hey, just, you know, get to a point where, you know, all right, fine, you do your own thing. You know, I just, you know, you reject me, I reject you. Is that how God responds? Look at how God responds with me, church, in verse nine. It's really astounding, actually. He says to Samuel, now then, obey their voice. (laughs) Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. What? God says to Samuel, hey, you know what, Samuel? Listen to them. Do what they say. Do as they say. I'm not going to punish them. I'm not going to renounce them. I'm not going to reject them as they... have in essence rejected me. It says, okay. Do as you please. But remind them one thing though. There are warnings that they need to know. Okay. There are warnings. Okay? You heard that saying before? <laughs> be careful what you wish for. You might actually get it, you know, right? You ever you wish for something so much that once you actually get it, it's actually like the worst nightmare you could ever imagine, right? You know? God's saying, Hey, be careful what you wish for because here's what you're actually wanting here, okay? Here's what this king that you're demanding will do in your life, okay? Listen up here. And in verses 11 to uh, 18, it's this whole list of what the king will do uh, and reigning over them. I mean, he's like, just, just look at this list. He's like, these are the ways of the king who will reign over you. He's gonna take your sons. He's gonna point them to his chariots and, and be his horsemen and run before his chariots. Verse 12, he's going to appoint for himself commanders of thousands of fifties. They're going to plow his ground, reap his harvest, and make his implements of war and equipments of his chariots. Look with me, all you people that have daughters, parents. Hey, he's going to take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he's going to take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards. He's going to give them to his servants, the kings. And in fact, in verse 15, he'll take the tenth of your grain, your vineyards, and give it to his officers, his servants. And he'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men, your donkeys, and put them to work. He's going to take a tenth of all your flock. And you shall be his slaves. Goodness. That's not good, right? What kind of list is that? What kind of uh, uh, thing... There's a king going to do there. I mean, I don't want that. I mean, Samuel kind of closes this one last thing with a hammer here in verse 18. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. What's the Lord doing here? What's God doing? He's giving his people... Israelites, one last chance, one last opportunity. Hey, come back to me. Right? Remember me, again, my love, what I've done for you, how much I love you, how much I always love you. Come back to me. Just, uh, just take back that demand for a king. I'm showing you the re- reality of what your life's going to be like with this king that you want so much. Your plan, your future, how you're going to get there. Well, this is what it's going to be. It's not going to be pleasant, I'm telling you. And in the end, you're going to cry out to me because of this king. But at that point, if you do so, I will not answer you that day. What more could God say? How much of a greater warning could God give to his people? I think about, you know, a lot of times, you know, we, we, we make decisions, right, in life. Where we have all these choices and all these aspirations. And, 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 and if it's not in line with God's word and his will and his story, you know, God actually gives us warnings. He does. He speaks to us through his word and prayer, through others, maybe mentors or pastors or leaders or elders. And he gives these warnings to us. He does in our life, right? And, 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 and you know it. You know it when it comes from him. You, and you, can't, you can't just say, oh, it's not God. And God is speaking to you here, okay? And, and we have two choices, you know. When, 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 when God gives us these warnings, well, we can choose to listen and, and heed his warning and advice and say, okay, God, you're right, you, you know. You're my heavenly father, you're my daddy, uh, you're, you're right. Or we, we can just choose to disregard and disobey and, and just say, you know what, no thanks. Thanks, but no thanks. You know, I got this now, okay? Right? God warns us so often in life. You know, y- y- you're going down this path, you think it's good, right? <clears throat> and when I was you know, single, 20s, you know, in my young adults, I think, you know, hey, what's the point of you know, being a serious Christian or a disciple of Jesus at this point? I got my whole life to do that, right? <clears throat> Let's have fun now in my twenties, and then maybe in my thirties when I settle down, then we can be this serious Christian, right? We have all these ideas, and what we think is—you know—we do things on our own. I promise you, there's warnings that God gives, and it is not in our best interest. Things, I'm telling you, it's not going to be good. This list of kings, uh, what a kingdom will do for you—I'm telling you, you're not going to like it. There's a, uh, this one example. Uh, this past week, uh, the Russian ministry, the RM, had a revival at our church. And they had a guest speaker that came from Russia. Okay? It was just like Russian pastor, you know, from Russia. And, and he could have a great word. But, but Pastor Vladimir Song, he shared with me this uh, story that this Russian pastor shared about tithing. You know, there's another topic that people hate to talk about at the church. But he was saying about tithing and how God, you know, is a command from God. And, and this is kind of what he demands from us, 10% and all that. But he said, the Russian pastor told this congregation, he's like, hey, in one way or another, you're going to tithe to God, he said. One way or another, you're going to end up tied into God, either willingly or unwillingly. And he said, what do you mean? Right? He said, well, well, either you're going to tithe to him faithfully, you're going to give back 10% of, of everything that he's blessed you with, knowing that everything is from God, and, and he gives this all to us as a, as a sign of trust and dependence on him, and God, I believe in, and I give back to you faithfully for the work of your ministry and the church and all that, and, and you know what? I believe you're going to provide for me all my needs, and I trust you, right? It's a sense of trust. We can give it willingly that way, or... We won't faithfully tithe and we won't faithfully, you know, obey scripture or God's commands. And, and guess what? We're going to probably end up giving 30 40 50% in the long run, he said. Yeah. Through ways in which maybe in life or, so, you know, maybe in your workplace or in your school loans or whatever else it is, you're going to end up giving a lot more back. And it's going to be a lot more painful. A lot more painful in your life. A lot more struggles, a lot more hardships, turmoil. One way or another, it's going to happen. God gives us warnings all the time. Are we going to listen and heed and obey? Or are we going to begrudgingly just continue to (laughs) disobey? One way or another, it's going to happen. But God gives warnings to us, church, right? Out of his love, right? And he gives us glimpses of what it will be like without him, right? As he does so in these verses that we just shared. (laughs) How will we respond? In verse 19, unfortunately, the Israelites still, hey, that's all good. That whole list of what the king's going to do to me, I hear it. It's, you know what? No, I still want it. In verse 19, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no. (laughs) No, there shall be a king over us. Where's this coming from, church? Think about it. Like, like if you think about what's going on in the minds of these Israelites, like it be so stubborn. Like, are they so foolish to still demand all these things after they'd be given a chance to take back their demand? Even they're even more adamant now. Right? What could be driving this nation to this point of persistence here? And now we finally get to the heart of their hearts. Their reason and their ulterior motive behind this demand. And we see that in verse 20. We look at verse 19 to 20 again in its context here. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, there shall be a king over us. Why? That we may also be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. There it is. What's the motive behind Israel's demand for a king, doing things their way? It's summed up in two words that we see in Hebrew. It's translated here, to be like all the nations. Here, okay. Such as all the other nations have. In verse 5, he even says, you know, Israel desires a king to judge and to lead us like all the nations. You see, church, God's not opposed to a monarchy per se or just, you know, I don't want you to have a king just for the sake of, no, no, no. It's the kind of monarchy that God is opposed to that the Israelites are demanding, you see. It's the kind of kingship that they're seeking after. Israel wants a king. How? Like all the nations around her, church. They want a leader, a king that will bring them power and political influence, and they want it now just like all the other nations have, just like this world has. They're saying, God, you know what? You've been good, but hey, you know what? Your plan, uh, it's not our plan. I don't trust in what you have planned for my future or our country's life. I, I, I trust in what we think is best for us, right? People of God, right? A covenant with God himself, taught by the Torah, protected by God's appointed judges. Now, what are they doing? They're seeking to be on the status level with their neighbors. The Canaanites, Philistines, the Amorites, the Canaanites, especially the people who are worshiping foreign gods and practicing human sacrifice, sacrificing their own children by burning them alive. These are the people that the Israelites are wanting to be more like. Now having lived among them for 200 years or such, right now they're kind of assimilating. Remember that message about how we kind of start to slowly assimilate into the people that we hang around and want to be influenced by. Now they're desiring to become like them. They're seeking conformity and security, right? And instead of putting trust and faith in God, the one who has delivered them always. Now let's take matters into our own hands. I demand a king. It's saying, God, I want something other than what you want or you intend for me. In essence, what they're doing, I'm choosing my own king, right, in my life. Choosing other gods besides Yahweh, if you want to say, but, but, but I'm choosing my own king, who I want to be king in my life. The crazy irony here is this is precisely what they are not supposed to be, right? They're God's people here, whom God has blessed, right? God's chosen commentator knows is Israel in seeking to be more glorious themselves they are in fact repudiating their own true glory isn't that true church in seeking their glory Israel right they in essence are repudiating their only true glory that they have that has been given to them from God above right they denied who they are denied their calling and they're going to have their way They'll get their king, surely. And we know, if you read scripture, right? Read scripture app. Download it if you haven't done so by now. Read scripture. If you go through the Old Testament, if you see the history of Israel, you'll see God's story. That these people, Israelites, will come to realize just how blessed they were before (laughs) with God when God was ruling over them. And they will endure the hardships and sufferings under the rule of the kings. You'll see it. You'll see the story unfold there. They're going to cry out to God one day because of their kings. And the Lord will not answer them on that day, church. Why does God allow this? Why does God give them a king? You ever wonder that? It's an important question. Why does God grant them their request even though he knows what's going to happen to them and how much suffering and hurt and turmoil it's going to cause to them? Why does he do this? If you want to say maybe it's this theological term called permissive will. God's permissive will. He's granting them their request, but he's warning them of the cost, church. I'm allowing you to do this. You know, God's not this, you know, sovereign God dictator or one whatnot where he's where he, he basically controlling everything you do. This, this this sense of free will. We sometimes think, oh, you know, you know, you know, God, you know, in the Presbyterian church, oh, do we have free will? You know, you know, isn't God like you know controlling me and I'm like No, that's not free will. God is allowing us uh, 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 to exercise this free will that he's blessed us with on a daily basis to either follow him, to obey him, and to heed his warnings and and obey, or to reject him and to suffer the consequences, right? But it's a free will that he gives. He allows this to happen. Why? Because he knows what's best for us, church. And sometimes, (laughs) if you're like me, sometimes we have to learn the hard way, don't we, right? Sometimes maybe the only way we will ever learn is to experience the hard way, the hardship, you know. Maybe we have to get to that point of being so broken and in such despair. Maybe that's the only way for some of us to really truly go back and depend on God. Maybe God, he lets his people... His children learn lessons sometimes the hard way, church, because he loves us, and maybe that's the only way some of us, so stubborn, will go back to him. But you know what about this decision that God does, church? In allowing Israel a king, demonstrates his love and his faithfulness. That God is still sovereign, he's in control. His unfolding plan of redemption will not be stopped. It will not be thwarted by man or humanity. It's regardless of the decisions and choices that we make, that even though we have responsibility, the decisions that we make on earth, God will carry out his plan, church. He will carry out his plan in spite of our failures, our disobedience, and God's love for humanity is so great that in Romans 8, he even says, even all things, causes all things to work together for for his good, for those who are called according to his great purpose, to those who love him. He's going to even take evil intentions of man and make them for good church. He's going to even take those bad decisions that you and I have made in our life, in our past, and he's going to make them for his good church. Praise God. That's his story, right? Isn't that beautiful? That the evil intentions even of the Israelites in our pastors today, what do they end up happening with the king? It ultimately leads to the rule of the ideal king, David, who in turn leads to the everlasting king, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God. The king who is and was and is to come, church, that today, though Israel was the chosen people of God, today now God calls you and I, the church, his people. He calls us his people. We are the church, the body of Christ. And today, God is inviting us again back to his story, church, and giving us warnings again of what happens when we huh, step aside and, and part ways from his plans. Church, the question really comes down to, do you trust in his plan? Do you trust in his perfect plan for your life, for your family's life, for your your friends, your loved, you know, loved ones, do you trust in God's plan? Whatever you've gone through recently. I know some of you have gone through something very very traumatic and, and very hurtful and, and a trial, tribulation. Some of you have gone through. Do you trust that God is sovereign and in control? Do you believe that he has a vision for you, a plan for you, a future for you? Church, we have seen his glory, God's glory, and it's been revealed to us in his son, Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. And we have a king now. God has given to us. We've demanded a king. God has given us a king, Jesus Christ. Is Christ king in your life? Is Christ the Lord of your life? Is Christ now the one you will turn to and seek after in obedience and in service? What are these kings, you know, that we try to substitute? Maybe it's your career or the things in our lives. Maybe it's your friendships that you seek after. Maybe it's even our children as parents. We place all these things before God, the one and only true king in his son, Jesus. We have to pray, Father, there's kings in our lives that have become more important than our relationship with you. And every day, every day, there's countless things that we do that glorify ourselves and not you, Father. Forgive us, church. That's why we pray. (laughs) That's why we come to pray on Wednesdays. We pray and restore that love relationship with God in prayer and we remember, God, I am dependent on you, that this pursuit of happiness will not end uh, without Knowing you and your son, Jesus Christ, right? Church, I talked about Parasite a lot. Today, there's this one scene in Parasite I'll just kind of close with that, you know, I'm not going to give anything away. Again, it's your fault if I do. But, you know, at this end of this movie, it's kind of like this chaos, disaster, and the father, right, the dad, and the patriarch of the family, he says this one kind of comment. It was pretty profound. He said, you know what kind of plan never fails, he says to his family? No plan, (laughs) right? No plan at all. You know why? Because life cannot be planned, he says. Look around you. doesn't matter what will happen next. Even if the country gets destroyed or sold out, nobody cares. There's no plan. That's the best way to live, he says. Well, you know, it's not what God says, church. God has a plan. And his plan is here in his story. And he is inviting you to be part of his plan. If we live in a world that's outside of his plan, we're going to start to see the things that we see in the movies and all this other stuff. I'm telling you, it is not going to be a good thing for you and I. I pray that you and I would get back together and um, understand again (laughs) this bigger picture. That we're part of his great story. He's called you. Join me, he says. Be a persuader of the truth. We're starting again. Evangelism training in a few weeks. We're going on missions overseas in a few months. There's ways at which he's calling you. Join me in the greater story. I'm telling you. I'm the great director. I want you to be part of the best original screenplay that's ever been written and ever will be enacted upon. It's God's story. Do you believe? Do you trust in his plan? I want to invite the worship team up here as we close. I want us to reflect on this church today. How is God speaking to you? How are we living our lives today and and the decisions we're making, the things that we're living for, the things that we're being, you know, spending our time, our resources, our energy, all the things we're pouring out into, right? How are we spending those things? And and I want you to to hear God's voice today and ask, how is that in relation to his story? Is it part of his story or we just try to just fit God into our life story? Because if it's not part of his story, for for his glory, I'm telling you, God's giving us a warning of what it's going to be like. It's not going to be good. You're going to endure more hardship, more pain, more struggling and wrestling. Maybe maybe we have to sometimes go there to realize this. God doesn't want you to go there. He doesn't want you to have to go through all those pain. He wants you to know God loves you and he wants you to know his love today. Not when you're 30 or when you're married and all settled down. Today, you trust in him, church. You are a holy nation set apart. A royal priesthood no longer part of this world. Are we still living like the Israelites? Forgotten who we are as God's chosen people. Are we any different than the Canaanites that are living next to us today? Are we desiring their kingship? Father, Jesus, would you be my king? I want to hail you, the one and only king. For you, Jesus, are the best king, our loving king. You died on that cross, save me. And I want you to be the king that I hail in my life. To you be the glory. Pray this church when you're ready join us as we respond in worship as we hail to the king, the one and only king, God's Son Jesus Christ. May he be that king in your